Welcome back to the Hutchins SSU Climate Change Podcast. My name is Zoe. I'm a senior at Sonoma State. I'm going to be talking about the effects of the melting glaciers due to climate change on weather patterns, wildlife, sea levels, and human displacement. So first, it's important to answer the question, what is a glacier? So according to dictionary.com, a glacier is an extended mass of ice formed from snow falling and accumulating over the years and moving very slowly, either descending from high mountains, as in valley glaciers, or moving outward from centers of accumulation, such as continental glaciers. So there's two types of glaciers. There's alpine glaciers, which can also be called mountain glaciers because they form on mountainsides and move downward through valleys and can actually deepen or create valleys um, by moving materials out of their way. And ice sheets are kind of the opposite. So they're not limited to mountainous areas and they more so form broad domes and spread out from the centers in all directions. So the glaciers melting are a super important indicator of global warming and climate change in several different ways. Obviously, the biggest um, reason for the glaciers melting is human activity. Um, We are at the root of this phenomenon, specifically since the Industrial Revolution, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Emissions have raised temperatures even higher in the poles. And as a result, glaciers are rapidly melting and calving off into the sea and retreating on land. According to the World Wildlife Foundation, um, scientists project that if we keep emitting this much carbon into the atmosphere through um, transportation, oil mining, etc., the Arctic could be ice-free in the summer as soon as 2040, as ocean and air temperatures continue to rise so rapidly. And it's not like this is a problem for the future. There's already been so much evidence of these glaciers melting. So since the early 1900s, really, many glaciers around the world have been rapidly melting. In March 2009, 160-square-mile piece of Wilkins Ice Shelf broke off into the Antarctic Peninsula. A really prominent example that I found of our carbon emissions melting the glaciers right now Um, was in northern Pakistan. So the construction of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor um, that is going on right now uh, uses around approximately 7,000 trucks per day passing through this area around the glaciers, which is leading to the emission of up to 36.5 million tons of CO2. And this emission will severely reduce the mass of the glaciers and will likely result in extreme flooding in the area. So it seems pretty self-explanatory that melting ice would rise our sea level, but I specifically want to talk about the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets because they are the largest contributors to global, global sea level rise. So what are the biggest detriments of the glaciers melting? Um, I'm going to be talking about the effects of that on sea levels, weather patterns, and humans and animals. So according to NASA, they have been measuring the sea level rise via satellite from 1993 to 2020. 
and there is the rate of change is 3.3 millimeters per year. So we're definitely going to see massive difference in our lifetime and really think about where we are, like the Bay Area. It's going to be completely different within our lives. Right now, the Greenland ice sheet is disappearing four times faster than in 2003 and already contributes 20% of current sea level rise. If all the ice on Greenland melted, it would raise global sea levels by 20 feet. Another glacier to be talking about when talking about rising sea levels is the Thwaites Glacier in western Antarctica because the glaciers in west Antarctica are below sea level. Thwaites is the height of a six-story building and around the size of Florida. Most of it is below sea level, so as it thins, water can undermine it, kickstarting a faster collapse, which makes it one of the most dangerous glaciers in the world. Thwaites Glacier goes a mile under sea level, and in the past 30 years, it has lost a lot of ice. But the biggest problem is the grounding line, which is the final point where the glacier lays on the bedrock. Grounding line is shifting backwards um, about 14 kilometers since 1992. So ice that used to be on land is now floating on water. The amount of ice floating away from Thwaites has doubled in the past 30 years and contributes 4% to global sea level rise. Now underwater, Scientists have found a cavity in Thwaites, which is two-thirds the size of Manhattan. So the collapse is coming in the next couple centuries. The collapse of Thwaites would add a half a meter to global sea level rise. But since it touches the rest of western Antarctica, it could trigger the rest of the ice sheet to collapse which would add three meters to sea level rise and submerge Miami, New York, and parts of Bangladesh. So the moral of the story that Vox points out is once the collapse of Thwaites starts, it will not stop there. It will trigger a lot of other glaciers to melt and rise the global sea level. I also want to talk about the effects that the melting glaciers have on biodiversity, not only in the areas around the Antarctic and Greenland, but all over the world, and also the effects that it has on humans and human displacement. So the large additions of fresh water can change the ocean ecosystem. So organisms such as many types of corals or walruses that depend on salt water for survival may not be able to adjust to this freshwater habitat and will face extinction. But also another consequence is um, polar bears and animals that were always living on the glaciers. They're losing their lands. And I feel like that was one of the things that attracted me to this topic was seeing all these images of polar bears sitting on tiny pieces of ice floating into the ocean. Um, we're also going to see displacement in humans because coastal communities will continue to face billion-dollar disaster recovery bills as flooding becomes more frequent and the storms become more intense. Some of the other impacts of sea level rise to coastal communities include extensive coastal inundation, increased coastal erosion, landward intrusion, 
intrusion of seawater on land, and changes in surface water quality and groundwater ca characteristics. I also want to talk about how the melting glaciers are affecting weather patterns. So as this ice melts, darker patches of ocean start to emerge. And this is eliminating the effect that previously cooled the poles, creating warmer air temperatures and in turn disrupting natural patterns of ocean circulation. But it's not only the abnormal patterns of ocean circulation that are causing these storms. It's also the rising sea level increases coastal erosion, which elevates storm surge as warming air and ocean temperatures create more frequent and intense coastal storms such as hurricanes and typhoons. So for a coastal community like Hong Kong, which is affected by about six tropical cyclones every year on average, um, there could be major impacts and possible increase in frequency and scale of flooding. So two examples of these tropical storm surges um, were the typhoons of 2008 and 2009 in Hong Kong that both um, made sea level reach three, my three meters um, a few hours before high tide. I'm super excited to be interviewing Hayden Begley today. She's a climate change activist from Los Angeles. She's also the daughter of Ed Begley Jr., who has been really inspiring and prolific climate change activist since the 1970s. He has his own show about green living called Living with Ed on HGTV. He also has a sustainable and environmentally friendly house cleaning product brand called Begley's Best. I think Hayden brought some really awesome expertise about climate ju justice, but also some advice about how to limit your carbon footprint from a young person or a student's perspective that doesn't have the resources to have solar panels and things like that readily available in their home. Hi, I'm Hayden Begley and I am a climate activist. And how long have you been interested in advocating for climate change? Well, you know, I grew up in a very specific household, um, a very unusual household. Uh, my dad is uh, an environmentalist and has been since the first Earth Day in 1970. So my house ran on solar. My car was electric far beyond it was before it was ever popular. Um, and so you could say I was definitely indoctrinated, but I would say that in a good way, you know, a good way of living. Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've kind of been this way my whole life. And then as I've gotten older, I've found my own ways uh, to do what I can, do my part. What yourself have you done to limit your carbon emissions and your environmental footprint? I grew up with solar panels on my roof and I grew up with, uh, you know, recycling everything you possibly could uh, and driving in an electric car. And now I drive an electric car myself, but you know, for the things that are not as accessible, my dad is also an actor and he has a lot of resources um, to be able to do these things. Um, but for those people, the things I've done myself um, as somebody who's a, you know, a student who doesn't have the same sort of resources, um, you know, I try to uh, lessen my carbon footprint whenever I can. I, um, even though I do have an electric car, it's a you know, plug-in car. Uh, 
I, I try to walk as much as I possibly can. I try to, you know, my dad always told me about a transportation hierarchy. So the biggest way we contribute to uh, our carbon footprint is through transportation. And, you know, we live in a car city, LA, uh, where, you know, our, um, our public transportation isn't as extensive as other cities. And uh, so I was brought up being told about the transportation hierarchy, walk where you can, if you can't walk, try to bike, if you can't bike, try to take public transit. Um, and then if you can't do that, you know, then you can take a car. So running through those steps of how, is there a way for me to get from point A to point B without emitting so much carbon? I think that was the biggest thing uh, that I've learned to adopt in my life that is, uh, something that not every, you know, everybody can do. It doesn't matter your um, financial status. I think it's super funny that you mentioned that because I've actually heard Ed talk about the transportation hierarchy um, in an interview after he took the subway to the Academy Awards a couple years ago. And I've also, around LA, he's kind of iconic for just like biking around all the time. Like I've seen him. Another one is, you know, when I do buy goods, you know, clothing, um, fashion, I try to either buy secondhand, which is the best you could possibly do, secondhand clothing, because you're not creating any, you know, each white t-shirt is like, you know, several hundreds of gallons of water uh, as well. So, um, and a lot of carbon admitted from making new uh, products and new um, goods, right? So if you can buy secondhand wherever you can, it's better for the environment. And then if not, you know, you can try and buy, if you're able to, if, you know, fin financially, uh, pay for clothing and goods that are uh, sustainable. So Hayden, what is your initial understanding of the glaciers melting? So uh, from a basic understanding, from what we've known for many decades now is there's, uh, from the glaciers melting, there's sea level rise. So there's more water being added to the ocean, therefore, uh, places that are at sea level, below sea level, or you know, even just slightly above sea level will be underwater in our lifetimes. Uh, but something that you know, I think is harder for people to understand and is um, a more difficult concept is that um, the ocean actually absorbs a lot of the heat that's being trapped in the thermal blanket of uh, you know, carbon that is in our atmosphere. And uh, the ocean is very smart. It has its own regulatory system. The same way that our bodies have homeostasis, uh, when we have a fever, you know, we, uh, you know, our body tries to regulate uh, due to a virus. Uh, we have now become like a virus, uh, adding this extra carbon into the atmosphere. And so the oceans have to regulate. It moves the temperature and the moisture around the earth. And that's where you see all of these hurricanes and things like that. So the podcast has been talking a lot about the effect um, of the glaciers on weather patterns. Do you want to explain one more time um, how these natural disasters we're seeing, such as the hurricanes in the United States, for example, are based or could be attributed to through the melting of the glaciers? Um, we've always seen hurricanes, uh, you know, throughout time, uh, but the added heat to our oceans uh, caused by climate change and caused by uh, the glaciers melting um, has attributed to this excess um, and more severe uh, forms of natural disasters such as hurricanes. And would you say that's one of your biggest concerns, the natural disasters? 
that's one of my biggest worries. As much as sea level rise definitely worries me, there's a lot of densely populated areas like Bangladesh, you know, the Marshall Islands, places that are at sea level um, or close to it, uh, and those people will be displaced from the rising sea level. One of the biggest threats I think that we have for an immediate uh, loss of life or loss of you know homes and displaced people is from massive hurricanes attributed to climate change. So what would you say to someone like Mr. Ted Cruz that wants to say this is proof that global warming isn't real because there's natural disasters such as hurricanes and polar vortexes going on right now? You know, I would say uh, to him that there's a difference between climate and weather. And we've known that for a very long time. If you ask a meteorologist um, and a climate scientist, uh, they'll give you the same answer, but it's two different professions. It's two different sciences. Uh, weather is a day-to-day patterns of uh, the temperature and the moisture in the atmosphere, whereas climate is the prolonged study. So I've heard you talk about a feedback carbon circle before having to do with the um, ice melting. So if you want to explain that on this podcast, go ahead. The basic premise of it is that there's a, um, as we burn through layers of ice um, and it begins to melt, there's a uh, several layers of ice that we're fast approaching that actually contain carbon within it right? Because they are from a different period on this earth in which there was a lot more carbon in the atmosphere and there was, the atmosphere was a lot hotter, right? Um, And the threat with that, as we continue to burn fossil fuels and we continue to pollute, that causes this warming, that causes this ice melting. uh, Once we get down to this level, once that ice begins to melt, it itself will be releasing carbon to the atmosphere and causing this feedback loop of uh, emitting carbon through burning the um, layer of ice while also uh, then warming further that causes more burning. And, um, you know, it's a threat. In your opinion, do you think it's too late for reversal? Or what do you think that we can do to kind of lessen the carbon that's in the atmosphere right now? You know, I get this question a lot, actually, if it's too late, um, you know, do I wish that my people had adopted the same lifestyle as my father back in the 70s when he first started talking about it? Yes, absolutely. But I, I do not believe it's too late. I think as long as we are here and we uh, work together on this um, and we're not um, separated by um, nationality or income status, if we all work towards this goal, we definitely can get there. And I think one of the, you know, biggest issues, um, although personal responsibility, I think is a great thing to adopt into your life and personal consciousness of your carbon footprint is amazing. You know, uh, electing people who uh, take this science seriously and want to make swift action. Um, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of good green legislation out there that I would hope would be passed to at least cap the amount of carbon that we're doing. Um, do I think you know we're at a certain level where we actually may need to use our whole arsenal? If you'd asked me a year ago, how do you feel about carbon capture? Um, I would say it's 
it's ridiculous. You don't need to do carbon capture because we can just limit our greenhouse emissions. But at this point where we're at now, we really do need to have people investing in carbon capture and carbon capture is the science of taking carbon out of the atmosphere. We need to use everything in our arsenal to be able to uh, limit the carbon that we're putting out in the atmosphere. I also know through training with environmental education is that you can't scare people with that. You can't make them think it's doomsday, right? Um, and it really isn't doomsday. We still have a lot of hope. If we're able to cap our carbon use um, through things like microgrids with uh, you know solar uh, being widely available and accessible to people of all incomes, um, having extensive public transportation in places like LA where it, you know traffic and car pollution is one of the biggest factors, um, we will be able to get there. And I think it's going to take a lot of things. I think it's going to take legislation. I think it's gonna take activism and I think it's gonna take personal responsibility. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys so much for listening. Your support does not go unnoticed. I really hope you learned something today, not only about climate change, but also about the detriments that the melting glaciers have on wildlife, weather patterns, human displacement, and sea levels. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great day.